back to the little podcast that could, People Are Wild. I'm Kim, your friendly neighborhood ER nurse, back once again for another week to talk with you about, well, whatever the hell I want to talk about. Some observations, comments, and follow-up. Thank you so very much for the support, and I'm ecstatic to announce that I've had my very first winner of a game of You Got What Stuck Where. So shout out to you, Cassie, for being most correct regarding episode two. Uh, You locked in the answer within a couple days, and so that actually threw me off for a second because I had to find the stickers I was teasing about. I did. They do exist. Uh, They're on their way to you, and actually they might have already been delivered to you by the time you hear this. So enjoy. Uh, If you are curious, head on over to my Twitter page at PeopleAreWild. And there is an x-ray that um, I would be glad to send you about what got stuck where. So a quick note before we take off too far into this episode, my recording setup is slightly different for this episode. I'm hopeful everything still everything still sounds good, but I do apologize in advance for anything funky. Uh, the only thing in my mind that should ever be funky is George Clinton's P-Funk. You gotta love flashlight, right? So let's get right into this week's topics. As I hinted at last week, well actually no, I just told you outright, no hints, no teasing. This week is part two of two regarding myths, urban legends, and conspiracy theories in the medical world. So grab a box of your favorite Girl Scout cookies, yes it's that time of year again, break out your tinfoil hats, cover up your webcams, because my Tara Reed prayer candle is still burning brightly, And I have listened to Rockwell's Somebody's Watching Me on a repeat loop for an hour. So I'm ready, if you're ready, to talk about how people are wild. This has been a medical myth that has gained some traction and speed within the last month or so, I guess, uh, and has actually been brought to my attention, much like when Beyonce dropped her new album unexpectedly. So, I feel like you know what this is about, but let's go for it. Since Tide rolled them out in 2012, laundry detergent pods quickly became a new headache for poison control centers all across America. Now, I hear it is easy to convince ladies not to eat Tide pods, but it has been noticeably harder to deter gents. See what I did there? I told you high-quality humor on this podcast. On a serious note, though, the medical myth that accompanies the Tide Pod challenge is as follows. With this craze of detergent deliciousness, does eating Tide Pods prevent skid marks in your underwear? I can hear you groaning and somehow rolling your eyes from here. I know, it's awful. The puns never stop. Let's get serious, though. According to the American Association of Poison Control Centers, which compiles numbers on poison control calls, poison control centers in 2016 and 2017 handled 39 and 53 cases of intentional exposures, respectively, among 13 to 19-year-olds. In the first 15 days of 2018 alone, the American Association of Poison Control Centers said that they had already handled 39 intentional cases of ingestion by who else but 13 to 19 year olds. So, 
there is a reason why the local Walgreens is locking up its supply of Tide like it's Sudafed and you're a subject on intervention looking for a fix. I mean, we barely made it two weeks into the new year and 39 reported dumbass teenagers tried to conquer whatever the hell the Tide Pod challenge is. So, as mentioned before, back in the year 2012, do you remember it fondly? I do. Carly Rae Jepsen was telling me that she might call me, maybe. But there was a little door the explorer of a toddler investigating the world that is their home's kitchen. And they accidentally got into a bin that held detergent pods and swallowed one, thinking that it was delicious, delicious candy. Now, that is not an uncommon situation to see around this time. It actually happened twice personally that I can confirm where toddlers would be rushed in by mom and dad after they accidentally ate a detergent pod. So I think what happened was that poison control centers kind of collaborated with these detergent companies after getting numerous calls from hospital EMS and parents. And so companies like Tide actually started to issue warnings. So these warnings talked about how the packets and the pods are attractive to young children, but that they were filled with highly concentrated toxic detergent that can cause a host of scary health issues. Now, the warnings included things such as, quote, children who have ingested detergent from these packets have required medical attention and hospitalization for loss of consciousness, excessive vomiting, drowsiness, throat swelling, and difficulty breathing. End quote. So depending on how much a kiddo would swallow, this actually became a life-threatening situation. And some kids, unfortunately, did pass away as a result of accidental ingestion and poisoning. But the thing about this warning is that it was paired in tandem with new measures by Tide and other detergent companies for childproofing those containers that held the pods in order to prevent kiddos from getting into it. Now, I don't think, in Tide's wildest dreams, would they think that they'd have to make a PSA featuring Rob Gronkowski geared specifically towards teenagers to not intentionally eat detergent pods. And I'm looking right at you, Utah State University freshman who had to be hospitalized for eating a Tide Pod. I just don't understand. So how did this even start? Well, as best as I can figure out, we need to go back to the island, you guys. No, actually, we just need to go back to 2015. The Onion, which is a satirical website with a tagline that touts it being as America's finest news source, published an article about kids eating detergent pods. Now, the thing about The Onion is that sometimes it has actually been cited as a legit and real news source. And so with that in mind, this story laid somewhat dormant for a few months until around mid to late 2016, when somebody got a hold of it out there and tried to actually eat detergent pods on purpose, intentionally, and recorded themselves for the world to see. And now... The Tide Pod Challenge was born. And you know what? That really, as a side note, that's not even a challenge. The only challenge that I will ever acknowledge and accept is currently on its 31st season on MTV and began as the Real World Road Rules Challenge. Thank you very much. So, going back to whatever the Tide Pod Challenge is, there are three things you need. 
one, be a dumbass teenager, two, have a recording device of some sort, and three, have access to a detergent pod. The ch- excuse me, the challenge part of it is to actually eat the pod and record the reaction. And honestly, guys, I just, I don't get it. You know, maybe, maybe this is one of those moments in my life where my age is really starting to set in, my ripe old age of whatever I am. Uh, but I'm not actually that far removed from my teen years. And I can't help but think that even teenage Kim would see that this is asinine and foolish and, you know, harmful. But, I mean, I've done my share of stupid stuff when I was a teenager. I quite literally still carry the scars from some of the stuff I've done. But I wouldn't dream of eating detergent on purpose just for views. I would not do it for the vine. Rest in peace, vine. Now, uh, just to go further, I guess, into this aside, my teenage years were actually on the cusp of that YouTube generation really taking off. And the only thing that I know of that was recorded, and I'm being kind of personal with you, the only thing that I know that was recorded and put on YouTube were videos of teenage me breakdancing. So here's a fun fact. If you play the timeless classic by Rob Van Winkle himself, the tune Ice Ice Baby, don't know if you've heard of it, you play it enough times on a loop repeat, I will actually appear holding some cardboard and ready to break it down to the extreme rock the mic like a vandal seriously though i used to break dance when i was a teenager and someone from my high school definitely recorded it and definitely put it on youtube so here's a challenge it's not a tide pod challenge it's a go see if you can find the clip of me break dancing challenge i don't know how to shorten that yet but if you find it report back to me needless to say you will see that i tore up many a dance floor and shut down plenty of clubs But, again, I digress. So, perhaps a true Tide Pod challenge for teenagers would be to take a Tide Pod, throw it into the washing machine, and do a load of laundry. Learn how to do your laundry before you go to college, kids. Seriously. I had a room with somebody who didn't know how to do their laundry, and they were 18, and I just didn't understand how you can go that long without doing your own laundry. So don't do this stupid Tide Pod challenge. You know, if you're rushed to the hospital, 18 years old, the age where you are technically an adult because you ate a detergent pod on purpose, I can assure you, everyone in that ER is going to laugh at you, Carrie. They're all going to laugh at you. You have swallowed a toxic substance willingly. The difference between a teenager and a toddler in swallowing a detergent pod is that if you're a teenager, you are choosing to do this, and kiddos are doing it by accident. But the health concern part of it is that you can end up shutting down your own airway. All for views. Your throat can swell up, it can become irritated, and then that's not good. So please, if you are a teenager and you are contemplating this challenge, and you're listening through some divine intervention to my voice right now, listen up. Do not do this. This is your sign. It opened up your eyes. Don't eat a Tide Pod. So now that we're all in agreement to not eat Tide Pods, let me wake you up before you go-go to an issue that you probably have little to no idea about. 
This is the medical myth about hurricanes and drug shortages. And let me just confirm with 100% certainty that this is true as I'll get out. So, when Hurricane Maria happened, it left Puerto Rico without electricity. And it still has been an issue for over the past three months. And I know we are all, for the most part, aware of this, but what you don't know is what I'm about to tell you. A considerable number of medical manufacturing plants are located in Puerto Rico on the island. Now, without power to a majority of the island, not only are factories shut down, but the employees of these factories are impacted since they can't carry on daily life, much less go to their job and carry on professional life. So what does this mean to the United States? It means that for the past three months or so, hospitals around the nation have been having critical shortages of IV fluids and medications that are manufactured in Puerto Rico. And we're not talking about just a few meds. We're talking a major chunk of distribution to the United States being cut off. So, if you visited an ER or had a hospitalization since the hurricane hit, you might have heard nurses, such as myself, griping about how we have nothing. We have no drugs, we ain't got no drugs or no IV fluids, nothing. And somewhat, it's not an exaggeration. Well, at least it isn't really anymore. So initially, it started off kind of as a joking thing that we always said, like, we don't have any drugs. Oh, Hurricane Maria, it'll all go back to normal soon enough. But it's been over three months. And it's not actually that uncommon for there to be shortages of medicines or fluids at any given time in a hospital. Normally, though, that shortage is temporary, like for a few weeks, maybe a month, before supplies are replenished. Now, much like when a TV show goes on hiatus for a period of time, it sucks for a little while and then things are back to normal once we're back on track. But not this time, not with Puerto Rico. So, let me bring you guys into the circle of trust, meet the parents style, for just a second. There are murmurs that some supplies of medicines, specifically the painkiller narcotic variety, such as IV Dilaudid and IV Morphine, won't fully be replenished until at least 2019. So, hospitals have been scrambling to adjust medications that are necessary for patients due to critically low levels of availability that show no sign of being restored. Hospitals are instituting different guidelines for how to give antibiotics, pain medicine, and even cancer or immunotherapy. That sometimes can mean a nurse has to stay in a patient's room for almost a half an hour to an hour to safely administer medicine. But barely anyone outside of the hospital atmosphere is really aware of the ripple effect that has been happening for over the past three months. Except now you know about it. Look, I'm not saying that people are trying to keep things hush-hush. Step back, maybe I am. But it's frustrating that this issue is not better after three months post-Hurricane Maria. 
And you can actually look up and read all the FDA and government statements about how they're working on addressing this issue as soon as possible. It's on their forefront. It's the most important thing. It's their priority one. But that to me is like when a politician holds a press conference to apologize for going to South America to be with their secret girlfriend. It's an empty statement that lacks any actual action going forward. Even with other countries such as Australia and Ireland doing their best to bail us out in the U.S. in terms of getting fluids and medicines, they're having to watch their own supplies as the worst flu outbreak in recent history is rearing its ugly head on their country's populations. If I have to be honest, it's bad out there in hospitals, you guys. And the FDA is doing its best to remain positive and optimistic, because there are factories in Puerto Rico that are somewhat functioning, but then the issue becomes getting supplies in and out of Puerto Rico. Again, please note, this is not meant to blast the FDA or the government by any means. I don't want the men in black knocking on my door because then no one will ever see me again. I'm willing to believe that the FDA and other various government agencies truly don't know how long all of this is going to last. But some of the statements that they have made regarding the shortages don't match up to what is actually going on in the hospitals, what I see and what I deal with on the front lines, as well as my fellow healthcare providers. So maybe that does bring out the conspiracy theorist in me that just keeps wondering why they keep saying it's not as bad as it truly is. See, when you come to a hospital, you shouldn't have to wonder if fluids or drugs are even needed or, or available for you to, to get better. You shouldn't have to have that stress on you wondering if that antibiotic is even in stock. But with no actual timeline in place for replenishing supplies, along with the flu season that's been especially heinous and horrendous, the stress on a hospital's ever-growing list of limited resources is causing massive strains and headaches for patients, families, and providers. So again, I don't think there is an outright government cover-up going on with not telling the public about this and how barely anyone in the general population just knows just how dire things are across the country regarding supplies. I, I don't want that to be a label. But... Don't you find it odd that you're probably just finding out right now what's going on behind the scenes? And here's another factoid. It's not just hospitals for us humans who are hurting for supplies. Veterinary clinics are feeling the impact of not having fluids and medications. So if anything, your pets might be eventually affected as well. And that's just not right. So if you hear that, that's a knock-knock, America, because it's time to wake up. Now, speaking of staying woke, as the kids say, and in an effort to lighten the tone because sometimes I do get serious about some things, let's get into some flu-related myths and conspiracy theories. See, I've been waiting patiently to do this one because I cannot wait to hear how wrong I am about everything flu-related, I am looking forward to engaging in a spirited conversation with whoever the hell I'm about to piss off. Here's my disclaimer. Everything I'm about to say, it is all my own personal opinions based on my experiences, exposure, and education. 
If you don't like what I have to say, cool. If you do like what I have to say, cool. Either way, this is my time to shine in the spotlight that is flu myths. So let's get down to it. The flu this year sucks. You might as well call it a Dyson vacuum because it just sucks. From the UK to Australia to the US, the flu is leaving a path of destruction that would give Godzilla a run for its money. So let's start off with a flu myth that is the big one, at least what I hear a lot. The flu shot gives you the flu. Now, if you come up to me and say this, I'm going to stare at you in an awkward silence, maintaining eye contact, maintaining eye contact, maintaining eye contact, before abruptly grabbing my bag and leaving. I'm hella rude like that, what can I say? The actual flu shot you get with a needle in a syringe does not cause the flu, okay? It's not a live virus. It cannot give you the flu. However, it takes some time to build up flu antibodies, usually about two weeks. So, if you were exposed to the flu before getting the vaccine and you don't show symptoms just yet, you might still end up with the flu after you get vaccinated. If, as in the case of this year's flu, the vaccine doesn't quite get the right strand in terms of coverage, you might end up with the flu. If you have some sort of other viral illness acting a fool in your body, you also might end up feeling like you have the flu, but not necessarily having the flu. But you won't get the flu directly from a flu shot. If I'm wrong, come at me, bro. But this is straight up info from the CDC and the World Health Organization. But of course, they could be microchipping all of us with flu vaccinations, and we wouldn't know. Anyways, the point is, the flu shot will not give you the flu directly. It's basically impossible. Getting a flu shot is a matter of personal choice, though, and I always respect that. Well, at least it's a personal choice for most people. For some, like healthcare providers such as myself, it's somewhat mandatory. Every year, I line up at the employee flu shot clinic, get my vaccination, my band-aid, and sticker on my ID to say that I'm vaccinated. It always reminds me of some sort of, like, intro to an episode of Black Mirror. Again, microchipping, I really think it happens. But there are people who have medical background who are healthcare providers who opt out. Now, some of them are truly allergic to some of the flu shot's ingredients and have unfortunately learned that the hard way, only one time, and can't get the vaccination after that as a result. Some of them, though, choose not to get it based upon their own evaluation of the risks versus rewards. So the decision to get a flu shot is entirely personal, but should always be made with the best amount of knowledge behind it. So let's address another flu myth. The flu shot this year is worthless. Part of me wants to scream, yes, it's so worthless, but the other, well, more reasonable part of me states in a very even tone, no, not quite right. This year's flu, that is particularly hitting hard, is a specific version of the flu H3N2. Now that's the same one 
that did damage a few years back in the 2014-2015 flu cycle. This year, it was reported in Australia as many as 745 deaths confirmed as a result of the flu. Australia kind of gives the rest of the world a little bit of an indication of what might be going on with this year's flu pattern. As the seasons are always different a little bit in the southern hemisphere, they see a manifestation of the flu at a different rate. By the time it gets to the U.S., it's already last year for them, and we're in the middle of our actual flu season. So, with the knowledge that H3N2 was the reason why a lot of these deaths happen from the flu, the manufacturer of the vaccine tried as best as they could to somewhat put a little bit of it in there, but it sounds as though the vaccination was basically already made and set in stone for this year. And as with what happened in 2014, it only contained a small part of that H3N2. As a result, you are seeing what I am seeing and feeling ERs filled to the brim with sick patients that have flu-like symptoms. You might have even seen that tents and like these bubble domes have actually been constructed outside in parking lots of emergency rooms just to house the amount of people who have been flooding and matriculating, that's my new favorite word, into the ER as they wait hours and hours because the rest of the hospital is full. So, if it's not the right virus in terms of what's in the vaccination, why in the hell would anyone get it? Well, even in a flu year where it's quote-unquote the wrong virus picked, if you get the shot and still get the flu, it decreases the severity of your symptoms. Yes, much like when I actually put earplugs in at a rock concert, it makes things a little less intense. It also decreases the likelihood of needing hospitalization. So that kind of leads into the question of what about all these reports that we're seeing of people who are in the prime of their lives, marathon runners, personal trainers, young people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, healthy people suddenly dying and being diagnosed as the cause of death as the flu? Well, background on H3N2. It is actually known as a particularly bad version of the flu, and it tends to cause more severe illnesses and complications like pneumonia and death, even in healthy people. But it should be noted that the flu really has a big impact in terms of mortality on our younger and elderly populations, as well as some people who have immunodeficiencies. Now, varying reports of 3 to 30% effectiveness of this year's flu shot definitely reinforces that whole myth of the flu shot being worthless. But it should be noted that there's not necessarily an increase in how many younger people are dying. It's just that these stories grab more coverage because it's a person that is young that is dying, and it's not that common in a flu season. So we're still dealing, like I said, with people who are very young and older, not very old, I don't want to offend anybody, and those who have immunosuppression, 
like people with cancer or autoimmune disorders being the most at risk for having death from the flu. On average, the CDC, I believe, says that it sees about 12,000 people die from the flu in the United States, and in particularly worse years of the flu, it can be as many as 56,000 people. Now, the CDC has come out and said that the flu this year is a mild to normal sort of outbreak, but that is probably a topic for debate for some of you who live in certain states where you've had to keep your children home, you've had to stay at home yourself, just because there is this level of so many people having the flu at once. So even though the CDC says it's not at a pandemic level, in little pockets of the country, it has definitely gone off and spread really fast in communities. But the great thing about a virus is that it is self-limiting and that eventually your body will kick it out with people who don't have other things going on on top of it. So the takeaway is this. Is the flu shot worthless this year? Eh, maybe. But I would still suggest that you look into it. Obviously, it's still a personal choice at the end of the day. But it might help you to know that you'll be a little less miserable should you get the flu with a flu shot on board. Now, say you have the flu and you were diagnosed by a cute provider, or at least you think they were cute because those fevers might have been clouding your judgment a little bit, and you get sent home with the recommendations to rest, stay at home from work, keep drinking fluids, use things like uh, acetaminophen and ibuprofen as needed for fevers and body aches respectively, and then you get a prescription for Tamiflu. Okay, so this is gonna lead into what I term Kim's big rant against Tamiflu and how you're being scammed by Big Pharma. Are you ready for it? I'm ready for it. I hate Tamiflu. If Tamiflu were a movie that everyone likes and says to go see, it's great, but really you should pass on seeing, it'd be James Cameron's avatar. Tamiflu is James Cameron's avatar. It's given out like candy, and some of it is because it's an expectation from providers. But really, it's only indicated in those who have additional risk factors. Generally, healthy adults with healthy immune systems that are fully functioning to an extent, obviously when you're sick, it's working a little bit harder. Fluids, hydration, and symptom management, everything I talked about a little bit before, are going to be your go-tos for care. You don't need Tamiflu. It's a scam. Okay, so why is it a scam? Because its effectiveness is a downright joke. Clinically, it'll take maybe, and that's a big maybe, 12 to 16 hours off of your actual viral illness. And that's after a week of taking it already. So do you think that's worth, literally worth, the risk of taking this versus the benefit? There's a lot of bad side effects that go along with Tamiflu. Oh, and I should mention that it can cost upwards of 150 bucks to get this medication filled. To me, and to a lot of healthcare providers, if you ask us about Tamiflu, we'll tell you it's a con 
from Big Pharma to line their pockets at your expense. And maybe we're a little bit off track, but it definitely isn't something that you necessarily need if you are a healthy adult. But it does get people riled up. It gets me, like, so passionate when people ask me if they should get Tamiflu. Like, I feel like I just feel like the foam coming out of my mouth and flames on the side of my face. And it's just, it's a whole experience. I Don't ask me on the street about Tamiflu. It's definitely going to be just, just avoid that topic. But if you insist on taking it, do your research beyond what I've told you. I am biased. I'm just going to come out and say it. I don't like Tamiflu. It does have some merits, though. If you look at some of the research, it does have a little bit of benefits when it comes to a widespread flu pandemic. Uh, It helps people to get back to functioning a little bit quicker by taking off a few hours of their viral illness. And there's actually some research suggesting that it might take 29 hours off the flu in kids, but that's being super generous. But I can also understand that. I mean, if your kid was cooped up and feeling miserable and you could essentially subtract a day, why not? So I get why the appeal of Tamiflu is there. But again, do some research, even if you get the prescription, even if you are thinking about getting it filled or you've gotten it filled, do a little bit more research beyond maybe what the pharmacist or doctor will tell you and make that informed decision. Because if it's just you, yourself, and a pizza place, Tamiflu quite literally might not be worth it if you can keep fluids down and you can rest and you could just maintain everything with over-the-counter means. But it's always going to be up to you. Either way, the flu virus will work its way out of your system on a timeline. So have at it. Maybe Tamiflu works for you, but not me. Not me. Not me. Now, usually I close things out with my favorite game ever, and that's not because I created it. You got what stuck where. But as of this recording, no one has guessed the one from the previous episode. And since this is technically a two-part dumpster fire, and this is part two of that dumpster fire, I'm reusing my clues from last episode for this week's game. I believe in recycling in every aspect of my life, even podcasting. Thank you for asking. So, once again, four clues, and you tweet at me, and whoever's most correct gets some stickers. So, here we go. Clue one. It happened in Florida, not to be confused with Florida, because this did not happen to him. Clue two. There was a gun involved, but probably not the kind of gun you would automatically think of. Clue three, it happened to a teenage boy who survived after a three-hour surgery to remove the object in question and probably does not do the Tide Pod challenge. And finally, clue four, the object stuck in his skull was three feet long. So again, there are your clues. Hit me up on Twitter at PeopleAreWild with your guess. The one that is most correct gets stickers and a token of my appreciation, which is always open to interpretation. So, this is kind of cool. This episode marks essentially one month down of this adventure. And I'm hoping you're having fun, 
medical entertainment is happening, you're getting some more knowledge, and maybe laughing or at least smirking every now and then, because I'm having a blast, and I like doing this. So, I wanted to give you a heads up. In February, next month, we are going to celebrate a theme. February happens to be Heart Health Month. Specifically in the United States, it is a awareness month for heart disease and heart-related issues. Now, all the episodes I will be doing will indeed revolve around how our achy breaky hearts are truly mysterious and some of the interesting conditions that go along with having a heart, like the Tin Man. Um, all of this business that I did last week and this week regarding conspiracy theories and medical myths, that's going to take a back seat for a while. I got it out of my system. Thanks for sticking with me. I'm going to go back starting in February, starting next week, next episode. I'm going to focus on doing what I do mm, somewhat well, telling some real life true stories, giving a little bit of facts, and of course, infusing some humor and creating the beautiful medutainment that I am, I guess, known for in a way. So this next episode, it will be a total eclipse of the heart. You might want to turn around for this one. Oh, you guys, the puns, they just write themselves. I love it. So once again, thanks for listening. Have a great week ahead. And don't go chasing waterfalls or eating Tide Pods.